0: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
1: There are basically two kinds of zombies. The oldest is the voodoo zombie, a person, perhaps walking dead, perhaps incapacitated living, a creature with no will of their own, mindlessly performing the commands of their book, the magician who created them. But since 1968, zombies meant something else as well. With the film Night of the Living Dead, filmmaker George Romero created a new creature, a mindless corpse that walked and sought out the flesh of the living. And tonight, we're going to talk with Harvard medical doctor Steven Schlossman about this kind of zombie, the Romero zombie, its plausibility, its popularity, and other cerebral matters. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with my co-hosts, Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno, we talk about monsters and the facts behind the legends. Today, we're covering one of my very favorite monsters, the Romero-style zombie. Based on the films of Romero and the many, many knockoffs and imitators, the Romero zombie is a shambling, animated dead person with an insatiable lust for the flesh of the living. Its bite is infectious, turning its victims into more ravenous monsters. It can only be stopped by destroying its brain. I'm a zombie fan. I've lost count of how many Walking Dead films I've seen. But there's been a pop culture resurgence to this creature lately. Many, many direct-to-video films plus high production value series from the BBC and AMC and major motion pictures with wide theatrical releases such as Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland, have provided a smorgasbord of viewing entertainment for those who enjoy the terror of being stalked by the living dead. I plan to do several episodes about zombies over the next year, but I wanted to kick it off with a bit of zombie lit. In the book, The Zombie Autopsies, author Stephen Schlossman takes on the zombie and tries to present them as quasi-plausible medical scenarios, not to convince you that zombies are real, but to provide a gore-covered canvas with which to paint a picture of human physiology. Besides, if you're like me, you know perfectly well that zombies aren't real. They can't be. Absolutely no way zombies could be real. But I still walk swiftly from my car to the front door on foggy nights, and of course I keep a crowbar, some food, and a case of water in the attic. Just in case. Just in case.
2: Monster dog.
1: All right, tonight we're interviewing Steve Schlossman, Dr. Steve Schlossman.
3: Is that right? Uh, for my mother's sake, that would make her very happy. Yeah. Okay, super. All right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you are currently a physician uh, at Harvard? That's correct. And I'm talking to you because of your new book, The Zombie Autopsies, which I just finished reading last night. So,
3: Steve... Tell us about your day job and how it impacted your book. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at at Harvard Medical School and at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm the co-director of medical student education in psychiatry for Harvard Medical School and the associate director of training for child psychiatry. So I'm a clinical educator. I was looking sort of, I think, unconsciously more than anything else for a backdoor to make uh, neuroscience kind of uh, um, fascinating in a way that folks weren't expecting. So I've used it in a, in a teaching yeah. way, uh, which has been really, really fun and gratifying. Even folks like the National Academy of Sciences have had me give lectures about neuroscience using the construct of the cinematic zombie, which seems completely silly and ridiculous, except it actually sort of works. And that's, that's been probably the most gratifying part of it, and also the easiest bridge between what I do now and, and you know the creation of this novel. Nice.
1: Can I just say that's actually the premise of our entire show – is that monsters are just a fabulous springboard to talk about science.
3: Oh, it's perfect. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think the the overlapping Venn diagram of sort of high and lowbrow, especially with regard to horror and monster and science, is, is so ripe and so underutilized. So I think it's great you're doing it.
2: So, Steve, how did you become so interested in zombies?
3: <laughs> it's a good question. So I've always <laughs> loved horror movies since I was a kid, <laughs> been a big fan, not, not of the slasher movies, not, not movies with real people who do really mean things. I mm-hmm. like the movies with fictional characters, so I don't have to be quite frightened. So I want to lead with the important caveat that zombies do not exist. I know that will disappoint some people out there, but I've had enough people say, are, are you saying they're real? And they are not real. Zombies <laughs> are fictional constructs, which makes them fun. What happened is a uh, movie theater here in Boston, the Coolidge Corner Theater, which is an independent movie theater, does this thing called Science on the Screen. They ask people to give uh, talks before they show movies. So they'll have like a physicist talk about moving light speed before they show Star Trek. Nice, It's a really cool program. They just got a Sloan Foundation grant, some um, movie theaters all over the country doing it. They called me, asked me if I would do one. And kind of on a whim, because I just watched Night of the Living Dead for the 10 billionth time and loved it. I said, how about a zombie movie? And I thought they would say, come on, get real. But they were so into it. This was back in 2009. So I spent the whole summer renting zombie movies. And, and they were all tax write-offs, which was incredibly cool, too. That was well work. done,
4: sir. Well no, done.
3: That was what I like. <laughs> so and then I wrote a fake medical paper about um, especially the slow, shambling zombies that people like George Romero made famous. That's, that's the zombie Uh, construct that interests me most is actually one I find most frightening, too. And then we watched Night of the Living Dead at this big movie theater. and I gave a lecture beforehand, and that kind of went viral, uh, no pun intended, online. And that Mm -hmm. led to the creation of this book. Basically, the people at Grand Central Publishing called me and said, would you write a novel? So that's the story. Wow.
4: Well, let me pick up on that. Now, you know, we talked a little bit before about, uh, you know, the, the, the educational aspect of these things. And as you pointed out, it's it's fun if you can educate people while talking about zombies. <laughs> <'Cause I> mean, <laughs> you, who, how, how, how cool is that? So what will readers and lay people learn about neurology or about physiology uh, from your novel?
3: Uh, a, a lot, I hope. I mean, I'll, get, I'll give you a quick anecdote, then I'll, then I'll answer it more specifically. Within the book, there are clues. So there's, if you read the book... They don't quite come to a resolution, and I'm not giving anything away. It's not like a big surprise that the zombie story doesn't have a happy ending. So mm-hmm. the there, there are hints in the book as to the missing bug that's been recombinantly designed by these evil hedge fund man, managers basically to destroy the world. Actually, they don't want to destroy the world. They want to bet at the mar, against the market as it plunges and then fix the world and then gets out of hand. In the book, there are clues. One kid so far has figured it out. He emailed me. I, I spoke at the Annapolis Book Fair. He emailed me. He nailed the virus. He looked it up. He did Google searches. This 12 year old kid. And first, I made sure his mom was cool with him reading it because the book has the F bomb and things like that. And then I didn't want anybody to get, get upset. And I sent him a little zombie action figure, which was really fun. So, one thing that's been really neat is not only have I taught medical students and science teachers, I've taught 12 year old kids now with this topic, which I just feel really happy about. The, the things you can teach, you can start just from observational um, medicine, which is the beginning of all sciences, just taking a look. So if you watch Night of the Living Dead and you see those shambling you know zombies shuffling about with that kind of dead stare in their face, if you're a physician – your first thought is they wouldn't. you wouldn't try and knock their heads off with a baseball bat. You'd hope someone brought them to the emergency room, and you would try to observe and figure out what's wrong with them. So you notice things. You notice they don't walk well, for example, and that then starts you thinking, well, what region of the brain is responsible for balance and for um, dopamine uh, secretion to make uh, basically your muscles move? They don't seem to think real well. They can't even open the damn window. So there mm-hmm. must be a region of the brain that's responsible for solving you know, semi-complex problems. And they're really, really hungry. And it turns out there's regions of the brain that are responsible for, for hunger. Now, there's other parts of the body that could be responsible for hunger, too. You might have a tapeworm, you might have malabsorption. But if you're teaching medical students, you would want to ask them the differential. If this guy came into your emergency room, in restraints probably, because otherwise he'd try to bite off your nose or something, he comes in the emergency room, you would say, what, what, what do you want to know? What do you want to know about him? Do you want a tox screen? What observations have you made? And to kind of take it from there. It's a zombie triage. Yeah, <laughs> it would be it would be a zombie triage. Now, now yeah. if there were a zombie apocalyptic plague out there, hopefully the CDC would start to notice patterns, just as we do with things like SARS or with H one N one or with mm-hmm. West Nile, for that matter. All these new bugs that keep showing up, we we learn quickly how to differentiate them from the things that they so often mimic. So SARS was a coronavirus. It's the kind of virus that causes a cold, you know, millions of times a year. But for whatever reason, reasons that aren't still well understood, SARS got nasty fast and picked on a bunch of countries in Asia and for whatever reason went after Toronto too. So it gets you to sort of think out loud about how these phenomena take place and to do exactly what you just said, to triage, to say, okay, mm-hmm. this is a regular cold this ain't. This is SARS. This is a regular person who seems to have taken too much of an illicit substance. This isn't. This is a zombie.
1: Zombies, or at least the Romero style, seem to offer uh, two vectors for fear. you got cannibalism and infection. Yep. In your story, infection seems to be the prevailing concern. Now Why did you decide not to do the typical zombies are after me type story?
3: Um, I actually I think for two reasons. Um, I find infection more frightening so I, I wanted to, this was sort of taking the thing that scares me by the horns and wrestling with it. I I have little kids. I, I'm i genuinely resentful of things like West Nile virus. Like It just bums me out that it didn't used to be here, and now it is, and I have to think about it and worry about it. And I know it's an incredibly rare thing for somebody to get West Nile encephalitis, but it bums me out. So I started running with the kind of paranoia that i'm likely to follow down too and it certainly pervades the press when when pandemics occur and to me it's that infectious process that's so frightening, the idea that is this a cold or is this the end of all mankind? And it feels like there ought to be some space in the middle there, but often when pandemics come around, we don't put a lot of space in the middle. So, so I just found it more more of a compelling story. The other thing to keep in mind is that in Romero's first movie, Night of the Living Dead, they never really say what caused the zombies. There's a hint that it's radiation, but George will tell you he was very careful not to, not to make it clear.
2: Steve, how much zombie research did you do uh, prior to writing
3: your book? Uh, well, given that they're fictional characters, I get to make up some of my own research, which is fun. Uh, so there's um, – in the back of the book, there's a the first article in the New England Journal of Medicine about zombies, which of course has not yet been published because the date is 2012 or 13 or something. So but, but I wrote it in New England Journal of Medicine style, and the bibliography is filled – with both fake and real articles. So articles that I made up, as well as articles that exist in um, in real life that have really been written. Articles about prions causing brain inflammation. Articles about um, how prions become more infectious in acidic environments. Articles about how diseases spread, for example. So, so I did a lot of research uh, sort of outside the psychiatric and neuroscience realm about infectious diseases. And then I did a fair amount of research about what bugs can invade the brain and mimic uh, the symptoms that we see in in the cinematic not the west african or haitian zombies but the cinematic zombies for example there are viruses that invade the ventromedial hypothalamus and make you hungry make you abnormally hungry ignore your satiety regions and eat
1: wow cool I, what are those? I, I, they're ice cream based viruses. They're right. horrible.
3: <laughs> ice cream, chocolate, and sometimes it's, you know associated with illicit substances in movies like Fast Times at Richmond High. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, there's a virus called. There's a bunch of them, but the one that you read most often about is there's a virus called the Borna virus, B O R N A. And it often hangs around in, in animals and makes occasional animal-to-human jumps. So there's some literature. There was an outbreak in Switzerland, staggering cat disease that then jumped to humans. There's an outbreak in the U.K. It, it, rarely are they, are they fatal to humans, but when they are introduced artificially into lab animals or when humans occasionally do get them, they eat and eat and eat and eat sometimes um, to near-fatal uh, conditions. Fascinating. I, Do they put on know. weight or Yeah, yeah. So you it, it doesn't increase um, metabolism. As well, it's a great question. So wow. it's not like a tapeworm where you would eat mm-hmm. and eat and eat, but you wouldn't absorb anything and then the reason you're hungry is because the tapeworm's taking away all your nutritious value. You eat and you absorb it's basically a binge. It's a it's a nonstop binge, but it's not um driven by the sort of desire to discharge anxiety, the way binge is in binge eating disorder. It's driven by infection of the ventromedial hypothalamus. You know, there there are other syndromes as well. There's some genetic syndromes, Prader-Willi disease, for example, that, that have the same presentation. But I was looking for a way that you could actually catch this thing. And then I had to, for it to kind of meet the criteria for um, a quickly spreading pandemic that would Become that would take on apocalyptic uh, levels. It had to be airborne. I, I talked with a lot of ID docs about this, and the the model of the zombie biting you and then you getting it just wouldn't work. We would at some point keep our heads, get a fence around, and it'd be relatively easily solved.
4: Earlier, you mentioned uh, that your book doesn't necessarily have an, have a happy ending. Speaking of happy endings, did you get into the physiology of zombie sex? <laughs> <laughs>
3: You are not the first person to ask that. Uh, (laughs) That may be disappointing to you. I don't know. It was was, uh, a lot of folks have asked about that. Do zombies reproduce, or do they have? You know, given that the the um, bug in this book eats your brain down to its most primitive uh, regions, down to the amygdala, Mm -hmm. which is kind of more science fiction than not because if you went down past to the amygdala, it would be awfully hard to keep moving about. But there are ways we could think of it happening. The amygdala is responsible for fight and flight. And many folks would say for lust to not lust in the way we would conceptualize it in looking at like a movie star, but lust in the way a crocodile conceptualize it, the kind of primitive desire to reproduce. So folks who have read this book have said, but wait a minute, you know, your zombies, they shouldn't be just out there eating and attacking, they had to be looking for a way to make more of themselves as well. Mm -hmm. The way I've sort of dealt with that besides trying to just not think about it because it's sort of a gross idea um, is to say um, if the ventromedial hypothalamus is the overwhelmingly infected area, then all they can think about is how hungry they are. That's, that's the only thought there. So their are amygdala screaming fight, flight, or lust, except the ventromedial hypoth- hypothalamus is saying hunger, hunger, hunger. And so those two things go together and lead to eating, basically, lead to chasing anything that moves.
4: Well, or, or is it that you just couldn't come up with really good zombie erotica?
3: It was, it was really hard to come up with good zombie erotica. <laughs> really I, I, hard. Well, yes. <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. <laughs> You're talking to a shrink, too. I mean, <laughs> well, if you can do it for vampires, and why not zombies? Well, but actually, that's, that's a really good point. Va- one of the things that I think makes zo- zombies so much um, more frightening, I love vampire stories. I've written about vampires. I, I wrote an academic article about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I, I love Ooh. Blood. I, I, but vampires are, by definition, libidinally driven. They are, when, the, when a vampire goes after you, he or she is after you, it's about you. At least that's what we're led to believe. And it makes you feel kind of special. Even if they're seducing you, you feel special. If a zombie wants to eat my guts and I step to the right, the zombie's going to eat the person next to me's guts. It's not about my guts at all. My guts are not special. And if your guts are going to be eaten, you would at least like it to be personal. It's the personal nature of it. I think that makes the zombie Hmm. genre so interesting.
1: I'm looking forward to your next book, Point. Zombies. They're not that into you. What?
3: Right. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> That's a great – But I, I, I have a love of... story for yeah. me. It's novel.
3: <laughs> it really – it's like a virus. The virus doesn't care. It just looks for a host. That's all.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've often – actually, you know, we, we're probably going to do some episodes, uh, multiple episodes about zombies because I want to talk about things like um, – uh, the zombie ants real real world uh, scenarios where disease really changes the behavior of things um
3: mm-hmm. is that the, you're talking about the one where the fungus gets inside their brain yeah, and they...
1: yeah. yeah, and then there's uh um, the disease is bloodborne uh cats get it if the rats get it, then they go and lose their fear behavior
3: you're you're thinking of toxoplasmosis Yes, um, exactly right the reason like when women are pregnant, they can't clean the litter box and things like that um it's and it doesn't always lead to sort of um you know out and out aggression and rage, but it can. That can be one of the presentations. Part of it has to do with where the um, cysts themselves uh, situate in the brain.
1: Right. And I guess what I was getting at was that if diseases or uh, those sort of uh, uh, real-world things that seem to affect behavior, uh, it it made me always imagine that a a really effective uh, venereal disease would drive you to more libidinous behavior. Uh, But I haven't ever seen any studies that would indicate that's actually happening. But, you know, if, you, uh, if gonorrhea really wanted to be successful, well, it would just you know, also make you incredibly uh, amorous, right?
3: No, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. So yeah. from an evolutionary perspective, you would want your bug not only to be very good at infecting you, but to change the behavior of the host so that it's more likely to infect other people. What happened with gonorrhea is it was, evolution doesn't work for the best choice. It just works for the good enough choice. So gonorrhea worked good enough. Um, good enough to not need to have an evolutionary adaptation. Now, if there happens to be a random mutation at some point in the future in some science fiction way that would make you more likely to feel heightened libido, that gonorrhea would outcompete the other gonorrheas, and it would go forward and prosper. Exactly. In the book, the, the, um, which is sort of hinted at at the end, the evil hedge fund investors who, who hire people to invent this monster virus. I wanted to pick an easy, an easy villain. so That's why I went with hedge fund investors. Um, they, they think to themselves, okay, let's make a bug that by definition creates, makes its host want to spread it. Um, it so, so the behavior of a zombie actually lends itself to passing the bug on to other people, but it's going to have to be something other than biting because if all they do is bite, it would be pretty easy just to round them up.
2: So how did real world epidemiology come into play in the zombie autopsies?
3: A uh, couple ways. There's a, another gentleman, professor of mathematics, who does disease modeling. He does modeling of, of epidemiologic outbreaks. His name is Robert Smith with a question mark at the at the end of it. His name is literally Robert Smith because he added the question mark to distinguish himself from all the other <laughs> Robert Smiths out there. So the the, legally, he changed the name. He um, is a mathematician who has looked at um, – used, the again, the construct of how zombie bugs spread – as a means of studying other diseases like um, human papilloma virus, for example he 's at the University of Ottawa, so I spoke some with him. I met him actually at a national science, uh, academy of science event, and we we sort of talked about the various ways that um, diseases spread, and also the I have friends in infectious diseases here at the hospital. my part of my day job is to be the consultant of the transplant service, so I, I hang out a lot with the ID docs since we see a lot of immunosuppressed kids. One of the things they 're always interested in are early warning signs of what are novel bugs or what are things that that you normally wouldn't pay much attention to but you but you need to when kids kids' immunosuppressants that can get ahead of them very fast so i asked how those things are set up it turns out they're set up very regionally so different cities will have different public health initiatives that allow them to spot things like swine flu for example more readily
4: obviously this is your book fits very well in with the, the current and 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 recent past uh, you know interest in and fear of zombies um, what do you think it is that that makes people so intrigued by zombies or scared of zombies given the fact that they're not uh, they're, they're sort of so outside the realm of our everyday life i mean it's it's right. they're not they're not quite extraterrestrial but they're certainly nothing that most of us would would necessarily think is going to jump out of uh, out at us uh, you know from from a closet it's a
3: it's a really neat question and everyone's got their own theory. About this, I have a couple of ideas, and then I've had you know a chance to think about it uh, in writing this book. One is I, I think. That most people would agree that our life is kind of increasingly, our modern life is increasingly zombie esque in in kind of cliched ways. So, uh, examples I've given are waiting at the Department of Motor Vehicles, where you you become a number and you kind of shuffle about and low lights and you're hungry for donuts and that's all they got, and you wait for three or four hours. So, there's this this way that we feel just disconnected when you're on hold forever, and, and they say this call is monitored for quality assurance, but it really can't be because they're monitoring everything. Every call, so there's no possible way <laughs> your call matters. So Good it's it's that lack mm. of um, personal meaning that seems to characterize the way we might feel increasingly disconnected. That I think has has maybe brought the kind of zombie construct to the forefront. There's also the idea that things don't look like what they are. So there's that that zombie thing that happens in every movie where. The guy can't quite get himself to pull the trigger on what used to be his girlfriend and sure looks like his girlfriend, but it's just a shell now. It's not his girlfriend anymore and the shooter man, she's already gone, I can't do it, and she might not be in at the end, he waits too long and he gets eaten. That that very thing we've seen um, used as a metaphor for like when the real estate market collapsed, they talked about zombie banks and zombie mortgages, things that pretended to be mortgages but weren't, things that were banks that looked like banks but really weren't, loans that really weren't loans. So there's this idea that things can masquerade as something that they're not and we wouldn't know it. W- with a vampire, even before he or she shows you her fangs, you get a sense that there's something, um, I think there's a chase going on, there's some kind of game going on zombies kind of take you by surprise. They just kind of shamble up to you, and you're not expecting it, I, I think. I, I think that's kind of the beauty of the movie, like Shaun of the Dead, where he can go in and out of that you know, grocery store so many times and doesn't even notice because thought that weird to see a bunch of people shuffling about early <laughs> in the morning. That's classic. <laughs> it's classic. It is classic. I agree.
1: So science question. Uh, prions <laughs> form about a third of the zombie infection in your book. They do. Uh, Can you tell us about a prion infection versus a viral or bacterial infection?
3: Sure. Prions prions are fascinating and, and creepy as hell. Uh, prion is a shortened uh, word that stands for proteinaceous infection, and that's because they are merely proteins. And the important part about that is that means they're not technically alive, at least the way we've defined life. They don't have any nucleic acid. They don't have RNA. They don't have DNA. They don't reproduce in the way that we think of reproduction, even for microorganisms. Nevertheless, when a prion gets into your brain, it changes it to Swiss cheese, basically. It causes a spongiform encephalopathy, and it, and it multiplies. So it's kind of a mystery how it does that and why it does that. It's not well understood. There are many theories, but there are many competing theories. So at this point, the the pathophysiology of why prions are so effective at sort of eating through the the brain in an almost worm-like fashion, especially given that they're not technically alive, it's kind of up for grabs. They were first discovered in Papua New Guinea um, among folks who ate each other's brains, either for ritualistic reasons or as cannibals, and it leads to general um, insanity, thought disorder, uh, motoric problems, myclonic movements, where when your body shifts really quickly, and then eventually um, death. It's also the the organism or the protein that's responsible, to, I guess you would call it the contagion, that's responsible for things like mad cow disease. And there, the, the big mystery was suddenly we started having hooved animals developing uh, a prion-related illness that had to have been in the soil all along. So what made it more infectious? And one of the theories is that the increasing acidity of the soil as a function of climate change caused the prions to twist uh, and fold and twisted and folding prions, we know make them more capable of eating through brain material.
1: Ah, that that explains a lot of the things happening in the book. Okay, right.
0: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti, and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about that you
3: care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say
0: Bigfoot.
3: Understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod
0: and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
4: and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious.
0: Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside... The Box of Oddities.
3: The Webby Award winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Right, so, and that, that's the mess in the book they're in. So they, they create this artificial alkalosis, metabolic alkalosis, where they increase their own pH, which also feels crappy. So they end up feeling like zombies in an attempt to ward off the, the progression of the zombie bug.
2: So this is like that uh, Kurtzfeld. Yeah, and Kurtzfeld- jakobs uh, yeah.
3: second gentleman who was responsible for this was named Jakobs. Um, so, so Kruetzfeldt and Jacob, um made this discovery in, in Papua New Guinea. Other docs have have noticed it in other places. Scrapies is another version of this that you see in sheep. And then every now and then you'll see this in a medical student uh, who gets it from a cadaver um, during dissections. I mean, this is increasingly rare as so we've gotten much, much, much more careful. But it's um, the, the the thing that's noticeable in the book and and meant to sort of stir up a little bit of horror is that the uh, prions have to make their way to your brain in order to be infectious. And, And they do have a predilection to get to your brain once you've swallowed them. So they get absorbed through the bloodstream and they like to go to the brain. But getting to the brain through breathing, an aerosolized version of them, that in when I wrote the book had not yet existed It just so happens that in the last year, uh, there was an article in JAMA and also in uh, Popular Science that talked about aerosolizing prions. And mice in laboratory conditions are 100% infected when that happens, which is terrifying. Yeah.
4: Well, I want to ask. It seems like uh, there's quite a few or at least a fair number of doctors who want to write novels doctor want to be novelists and of course lawyers as well you look at uh, <laughs> you know people like Crichton and uh, John Grisham? Grisham, yes, there, there you go. What, Scott
3: Turow too. Yeah,
4: this Turo, yeah. I mean, t- take your pick. What? What do you? Is there something specific to those sorts of professions? Do you think it is, or just sort of? Do you think everybody has a novel in them, and some people have more ability to to act on that, or?
3: Um, it's a great it's a great question. First of all, I think not everybody has a novel. Probably everybody has a screenplay, from my experience. But um, <laughs> it's a bad joke. I'm sorry. So the, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I used I was a an English major. I was a high school and English teacher. I love stories. I've always loved stories. When I went to medical school, I knew I would be a psychiatrist in part because I love the stories. I'm, I'm very aware that these are real people with real issues, and so I, I take that work extremely seriously. But I, having said that, I've not ever met a psychiatrist who doesn't want to write a story at some point. And then when you start kind of scratching the surface of physicians, especially medical students, before they find out that the time they get with their patients is increasingly limited, the stories we get are such privileges to hear, and, and they become kind of kernels for, you know, they're, they're reflective of the human condition. So we have an opportunity then to kind of tell these stories in displacement. It's a mm-hmm. way of coping with our own work and also a way of um, being creative. With attorneys, I don't happen to be an attorney, but I know that attorneys also hear very privileged information all of the time and one of the, and, and sometimes not the easiest information to hear. So one of the ways you cope with it is you put in displacement and you, and you tell stories about it.
4: It, it's almost, it might almost be an, an expected offshoot of, of what you're doing.
3: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, when I teach medicine, I, I tell the students to really think of their patients as storytellers. The, the patient knows what's going on with them better than anybody else. And so before you do your physical exam, before you order a bazillion tests, let your patient talk. Let them tell you the story. Uh, because that, that's where 90% of the diagnosis is made, and that's actually where the fun of being a doctor is, too. have hmm.
1: written uh, quite a few nonfiction articles in addition to the novel. Which do you find more challenging, the fiction or the nonfiction?
3: Um, you mean to write for to me to write? write? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I find writing the fiction unbelievably rewarding, but also more challenging. I, am two thirds of the way done with my second novel right now, which I gotten very good responses from, from my agent and from the publisher and I keep getting stuck. I keep saying, "Well, if this happens to this character. I don't know what's going to happen with this other character i mean it's it's very hard to sort of tell stories within stories within stories. If I'm writing a nonfiction piece it, it's like writing an, an essay, and essays have a clear arc to them uh, so it's um they're they're related beasts, but they're different enough and and I think they lend at least for me they they, one lens to the other. Could
2: the world survive an infection-based zombie outbreak?
3: Hope so. Uh, they're fictional. <laughs> um, but, and I keep saying that because people keep asking, the uh, the CNN did this Twitter chat and, and we finally had to say, they don't exist. We had to put that in big capital letters on the Twitter chat mm-hmm. on Monday. The, um, <laughs> I think the world could survive. Here's where I think the world could get into trouble. We would see a bunch of shambling around corpses and it would scare the the bejesus out of us, which would make sense. That's an appropriate response to shambling around corpses that are biting people's arms off and things like that. And in response to very, very intense fear, we often fail to use our frontal lobes in ways that we would be proud of later. So I I know that sounds preachy, but that's the key to every zombie movie. You watch these zombie movies, and you see these, especially the slow-moving zombies, and you see these slow shambling about zombies. And in the beginning... All they do is bash their heads in and shoot them in the head, and they actually even seem to enjoy it a little bit. But that kind of behavior, I think, takes its toll on us as humans. I, I think when we shoot something, we want it to be angry about us shooting it, especially you know, and want it to kill us back. And the fact that they don't reflect any emotion back usually makes us behave even worse and worse and worse. I I would think we could survive. We could keep our head, so we could say, okay, this is a bug an infection. We've dealt with infections before. Let's get our very best scientists out there. Let's uh, quarantine where we need to quarantine. Let's keep safe what we need to keep safe, and let's study it. Um, let's not grab for the shotguns or the machetes or all of that. Let's actually grab for our frontal lobes. That's our best weapon. <laughs>
4: go right go right for the powerful ones <laughs> um of course the the title of the book is the zombie autopsies do you do autopsies or where did you get the details from that are um, you, um...
3: yeah so I, I don't do autopsies in, i mean i did, did a few in medical school they're they're hard they're fascinating um but you know they're also it's a the person there, so mm-hmm. it's it's. Um, I was a big fan of the X Files, and I will still watch old old episodes. And I love, you know, all the scenes where Scully kind of is boringly taking the organs out and throwing them in the scale and weighing them. Uh, and, and I always see that as a kind of defense against the intensity of of, of what you're doing. If, if you read like Da Vinci's old stuff, he he was always reluctant to cut open a person, even though he did it all the time in order to make the anatomy clear so so i talked to pathologists that that i you know get to work with to sort of understand basic autopsy procedures and i also wanted to work with this construct of of the walking dead if they're dead then any surgery on them is by definition an autopsy so mm-hmm. so there's this kind of trick of language there that i was trying to play with that they're not really dead. They're just declared ecumenically dead in, in the book I wrote. A bunch of religious leaders get together and say, geez, they might have, they're as good as dead. And that is very similar to the much more difficult conversations that happen all the time in real medicine, where we have to decide who's you know, who's worth keeping on the vent and who's not. Those horrible, awful, existentially uh, profound discussions, they're much easier to learn about in the displacement of a zombie novel than in, in the real world. So... Even the idea of a zombie autopsy makes you say, oh, well, good, they must be dead. But then in the book, they're clearly not dead. They're watching it happen as you're doing it.
4: Right. So, so just just to be clear, you're admitting that you have not actually autopsied zombies. Is that right?
3: I am absolutely going on the record that it never once have I done an autopsy on a zombie.
4: And no zombies were, were, were harmed in the making of your novel.
3: No zombies were harmed in the making of the novel. You know, it's, there is an important point here. If you go online, the um, publisher – Hired a wonderful filmmaker, a guy named Hugo Perez, who's, who's a really talented guy. And we made both a trailer and then a, um, a teaser for the book. And it was really fun to do. And I ordered some sheet brains from a biological supply company that, you know, go to biology labs and high schools and colleges for dissection. And we ended up having to put a disclaimer on the video these are not human brains. No, I mean, it's a really small brain. So it would have to be like a child brain, which is like, gross. there's no way I would ever do that. <laughs> People were like, how could you do this with human brains? Like, well, first of all, it's really tiny. So, I mean, it's bigger than you would expect for how dumb you expect sheep to be. Having said that, it's clearly not a human brain. But we had to put on the video no human brains were harmed, or and no humans were harmed in this either. So right, because in, I, they're,
1: they're zombies now.
3: Right. <laughs> But neither <laughs> nor humans were harmed. Yeah. Now, in the book, there is an ethical guideline. You're allowed to dissect stage four disease people, but not stage three. And one of the things they're kind of um, working with is the idea that in order to learn more about the disease, they're going to probably have to do experiments on folks who are at stage three. And that's very ethically questionable uh, because stage three is still realizes who and what they are. So it's this moment of kind of again existentially driven angst for all of the scientists as they struggle to save the world
1: okay just just a very new uh i guess this is an overly specific question, but the uh, in the book you talked about uh how to slice a brain as though it were a loaf of bread is, uh-huh. is that actually based on real advice you've been given or is... yep. That's word for word. It seemed awfully (laughs) realistic. It it really did.
3: That that was, that was, I mean, you know, you never know it's, I'm not the only one who heard, I mean, I remember everybody in my medical school class sort of chuckling when this was heard. And I've talked to people who've gone to other medical schools and I've also heard the same thing. So you never know if the neuropathologists say that because it really is like cutting bread and it's not unlike cutting bread, but there's other analogies you could use. Or if they say it kind of to be gross and gory and get you all excited, it is like cutting bread in that if you try to just, push the knife down, you're going to, you're going to sort of serrate it. You're going to mess it up, not get a clean cut. But if you go back and forth the way you do in cutting bread on Shabbos, for example, then, um, then you get a nice clean slice. There seems
2: like some real life politics in your book. So how realistic do you think that is, for example, in terms of legal classifications of persons as no longer human or,
3: or zombies? I think it's it's very. I mean, it's it hasn't happened yet. I don't think we have any disease where we we've, we've been willing to say this person doesn't exist as human. But we are always playing with this notion in medicine about where we draw the lines, where we draw where we put our lines, where we call something pathologic and where we call it normal. It's especially an issue in psychiatry and what I do. But but it happens in all of culture and those decisions are both the function of, of gathered data through very careful scientific inquiries, but also through culture and policy and religious beliefs. So to that extent, I think it's not that far off. I, I hope that we never get to a place where we say, you know, this, is, this person is as good as not being human. We know historically that we've been more than willing to classify enemies as subhuman in, in some way. That's one of the ways that allows us to go to war. And that was another idea I was sort of thinking about in the book.
2: Dehumanization and
3: right, right. I was going to say it reminded me of the Terry Shivo case quite a bit. Uh, the Terry Shivo was, was exactly on my mind. Thank you for bringing it up. That's the case that came to mind when I was um,
1: okay. Cool. I yeah. put a book note in my uh, my Kindle. So
3: <laughs> yeah. no, I think I think that's really cool that you thought of that. Um, it, it, it that was a horrible story. I mean, I mean, not not horrible in that. I mean, I felt horrible for the family. I felt horrible for the situation, and I felt horrible for um kind of the culture. I don't know that there was a good answer to it, and, and though the lack of a good answer is something that we have a very hard time dealing with, and the irony of modern medicine is there's this illusion that we have good, straightforward answers all the time, when as a matter of fact, we, we almost never do, so the Terry Schiavo case really brought that to light, in part because it was so well publicized, and in part because it brought to light this question of when is somebody as good as dead? Like, like, when is it not worth their being considered alive?
4: I'm still sort of stuck on the, uh, on the brain slicing thing. Um, mm-hmm. What would human brains taste like? I know that people sometimes I, eat animal brains. Uh, I, I I personally don't, but I do know some people do eat animal my brains. My family so does. Based, yeah, I mean based, okay, so <laughs> based on, ba- I mean, assuming that they're based on, the, you know, the same sorts of materials, do you have some idea of what brains would taste like?
3: I don't. Other than that, um, there's a fair amount of um, fat. So there might be that kind of, I I really don't know. I'm sort of thinking out loud here.
1: Mm-hmm. I can actually, I speak to that, Ben. My, my, uh, I have relatives who are farmer, you know, background They're the, the. I guess my, not my father's generation, but the generation before that, a lot of them are still around, uh, and happily, Hey guys, I'm, I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> anyway, they, uh, they normally would eat uh hog brains when they killed hogs, uh, as like a treat almost. And they would scramble oh. them. Uh, In the frying pan, and my aunt, who's the only person I've ever asked about this, said to her, "They taste a lot like regular scrambled eggs."
3: That's what I've read. I've read they taste like scrambled eggs, but a little bit sweeter, a little bit um, kind of fattier. um, You know, kind of like a like good breakfast food.
4: Is there anything unique to human physiology that would would lead us to think that uh, human brains taste any different, or or is it logical logical to assume that they would taste like you know pig brains?
3: I think it's from what I know. I can't think of a reason they would taste any different from pig brains. Um, They probably would taste different, I would think, from from lower organisms like crocodiles, for example, because Mm -hmm. in fact, because there's just so much more um, gray matter involved. But I'm I'm not sure. And frankly, no one's ever asked that before either.
4: (laughs) We'll have to interview a chef next time.
1: Well, I'm just wondering because I mean, doesn't there a lot of uh, collection of glucose in the brain?
3: Um, Yeah. Yeah. So one of the reasons there's glucose and there's carbohydrates one of the reasons that people have said that it tastes more sweet at least my understanding and I've myself never tasted brains is the uh, fact that the the glucose and the fat was sort of combined in that nice fatty you know smell that you get when you have sausages for example
1: and there's been so many zombie films lately and uh, actually before the interview I went and looked online there's a list on Wikipedia this surprised me they list and I'm not sure I agree with every selection they have in here but more than six hundred and fifty zombie films, if you There's can believe come. that. Were, they, were,
3: they, were these international as well as nat- they US? are,
1: yeah. I mean, but they go back to like uh, White Zombie and I Walked with a Zombie. Yeah. Of course, obviously, Night of the Living Dead is the one that really turned around the genre, in my opinion. Yep. Um, although, truthfully, I've been reading a lot of uh, literature lately, so I kind of always thought of Romero as the inventor of the uh, the shambling horror that eats you. But I've been reading. Um, uh, Robert E. Howard horror stories, and I guess even back in the EC Comics type stuff too, which was actually after that. You know, the the sort of shambling Walking Dead, not Haitian zombie, uh, was still out there. But okay, so what? My question was, did you watch AMC's The Walking Dead? Oh
3: yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. In fact, I, I even got um, asked to write a chapter uh, about it, about that the last episode when they go that to... That was see- what
1: I was going to ask you about. I, was, I, I yeah. You know, that CDC is here in Atlanta, but they actually filmed that uh, at the Cobb uh, Energy Center, which is like a performing arts center, which is uh, right near where I work. It's very funny to drive by there. Oh,
3: so you got the the building that was blown to pieces? Is that right? Because it didn't look like the CDC, did me Yeah,
1: no, no. Yeah, That the building that's blown to pieces is actually where you would go see... Uh, uh opera or uh, <laughs> <love cars>. it. <laughs> It's Thank very you. fancy. <laughs>
3: I found that last episode. I, first of all, I love the show. I, I thought the show began like every other zombie movie. They sort of set the stage, but then it, it really took off and and was about the characters and the relationships, which is really what zombie movies are about. If you, I, I've gotten to be friends with uh, George Romero and all of this, which has been just a joy. He's been a, a marvelous guy and a great mentor and just a great friend. And he always says zombies are the thing that happens. It, it, it could be a hurricane, it could be a tornado. He happens to like the zombies, so that's what he does. When he made Night of the Living Dead. He wasn't even thinking zombies. He called it Night of the Flesh Eaters.
1: Yeah, the
3: publicists changed it, and then somebody in one of the magazines called them zombies. So he figured, ah, it works. I'll go with it. The, um, before that, before Romero, and also before some of the, the literature you just referred to, and also books like I Am Legend, the original, which was like 1956 or something, the, the first novel, nobody was afraid of zombies. They were afraid of becoming a zombie. And and the big shift came with the idea that you could sort of catch the zombie bug or become turn be turned into a zombie in some way. That's that's that was the shift I think that people did before George, but George really made famous with Not to Live dead. And by the way, he never made a dime off that movie. Yeah,
1: like, yeah I know, movie? I know. It's very sad.
3: It is sad. He didn't he just was having he was a cameraman for Mr. Rogers at the time. And he was wanted to make an anti war movie, so that's what it was.
1: It is an astonishing little film, even now. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) I love it.
4: Again, we've talked about uh, the different types of zombies. Now, do you prefer the the slow zombies or the fast zombies?
3: This is the debate. Last year at Spooky Empire, which is a horror enthusiast convention in Orlando, I was asked to do an Oxford-style debate where I would resolve the affirmative that the slow-moving zombies are scarier. And the guy debating against me who went by the name of the Grim Reaper, I don't think that was his real name, he debated that it was the fast-moving zombies that were scarier. I I much prefer slow-moving zombies. I think they're way scarier. I think having time to think is one of the scariest things humans can endure. Like if, if something's running after me, then I'm going to run. And it's pretty straightforward. Or if it tries to hit me, I might hit it back. But if it's just shambling towards me ever so slowly, if I could eat a sandwich while getting out of the way, if I have time to do something like that, that to me is so much more frightening. It's that time. It's, it's the not knowing when I can ever let my guard down.
4: The suspense.
3: Yeah. To, to me, that, that's what gets me. It was funny because in that debate, I tried, you know, I made this argument. I talked about brain regions. And, and the other guy who was, who was a lovely guy, really nice guy, he stood up and he said, I don't know, when they chase me, they're pretty damn scary and I'm going to run. <laughs> this is an argument. And, and it was a good argument, too.
1: I'm sorry, who won the debate?
3: Um well we we did the clapping thing at the end it looked like a tie although afterwards i was told i probably lost.
1: Aww. Oh. It's, Aww.
3: it's okay. It's okay. I still stand by my conviction. No no, I, I
1: well i prefer the slow zombies <laughs> as a survivor, right? I mean <laughs> I I think i'd have a better chance because i'm kind of slow.
3: Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Is that, was that in Zombieland Cardio that was one of the yeah things. it
1: was it was and I, I believe me I need to work on my cardio but I mean yeah. you think about it like so many people here in the south or, I don't know have you ever played the Left for Dead video game
3: oh it's, it scares the poop out of me but yes I've yes I mean it.
1: I love that game it's like being in a zombie movie right but yeah. uh, I just uh, I just I hate the, the fast zombies because I'm slow and uh, I want but at the same time I don't think I could prevent myself from being a zombie hunter if they were real. You know, it's just, I would have to. Right. Unless, <laughs> <laughs> unless they're fast and then I'd be up in my attic. Right. So,
3: Right. Well, that's, I think the fast movie, it's a different, first of all, neurologically, I mean, thinking about how I would teach med students, I'll ask them. I will literally ask them, okay, We've just watched a clip of I, the Living Dead. Let's look at a clip from 28 Days Later, knowing that many zombie purists will not consider the zombies or the infected in 28 Days Later zombies, it probably including myself. But let's watch it because it definitely falls within the genre. It borrows from the genre. They're different. Tell me what's different about their brains. And they move fluidly with coordination. They hunt and pack behavior. So you can say a lot of things about their brain that you can't say about the, the Romero zombies as well. They're, they're different. They're more uh, sophisticated. I want to audit your classes. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you, I would love it if you could tell my dean that. That would be great.
2: <laughs> Will do. So, here's our final question we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, so, Steve, what is your favorite monster?
3: Oh, that's such a, a loaded question at this point. Favorite monster, like from the monster movies, is that what you mean? Because I would I would say Sasquatch. Any, no, no, any, monster.
2: any kind any monster. on the any continuum. Much.
3: Believe me,
1: Sasquatch is uh, our bread and butter. But- <laughs> I, 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 well, I didn't know that.
3: I. I love Sasquatch. I, I mean, I, I, I love zombies because of the zombie thing, but I grew up in the 70s, man, and I couldn't get enough of Sasquatch stories, and I truly miss them. I, I, I wish they were more often online. There's, there's a great, very funny book, which you've probably seen, I Not Dead. The, I don't know if that, but it's, <laughs> it's totally worth reading about Sasquatch. So, so my favorite potentially fictional monster will still be Bigfoot. I think very he's good. a North American original. <laughs>
1: Wow. That's great. Well, Dr. Steve, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard from Harvard medical doctor and author Steven Schlossman discussing his new book, The Zombie Autopsies. A link to the book will be in the show notes, along with a link to the video trailer he produced. Also, we have a very cool piece of zombie art you can download, produced by the gruesomely talented Jeff Zornow, just for our show. Monster Talk is produced by Skeptic Magazine. When you're stocking your zombie safe room, you should consider putting in some issues of Skeptic Magazine. It's good for reading, and you can use it to start fires. But I must be honest, it is no substitute for toilet paper. You should stockpile that separately. Monster Talk is hosted by me, Blake Smith, and skeptical researchers and writers Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolsno. Links to their many interesting projects are in the bio links at skeptic.com under podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, why not give us a review at iTunes or share the show on your Twitter and Facebook accounts? And if you've just made a ton of money on the stock market by creating a super zombie virus, why not donate a little of that to our show with the donate link? All the money you donate will be used to buy hatchets, freeze-dried food and leather armor, and possibly a chainsaw. Theme music for Monster Talk was by Peach Stealing Monkeys. The opening music was a short selection from the film Dawn of the Dead, titled Figment. The music during the interview was produced by the very talented Symbian Project and used with permission. Links to these artists' music will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening.